really diversity is, is actually an amazing opportunity for organizations. Well, for the reasons that, that I outlined above about performance and about um, preparedness and about purpose. But diversity doesn't flourish, it cannot flourish without inclusion. And in fact, without inclusion, diversity is unfulfilled potential. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today we have a very special episode because I'm not just joined by one guest, but two guests. So me sitting in Brussels, I have Alison Maitland, who's joining me from the UK, and Rebecca Steele, who's joining me from Canada. So a big welcome to both of you. Hello. Now, uh, before we uh, go to the conversation about uh, the new book that was co-authored by Alison and Rebecca, the book is called Indivisible, Radically Rethinking Inclusion for Sustainable Business Results. And I can't wait to have this conversation with the two of you. But before we do that, let me just um, quickly introduce our two guests today. So Alison Maitland is a writer, speaker, advisor, and coach. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that quite a lot of the listeners would know Alison. Um, and Alison and I have also met back in 2014 when we invited her to come and speak at a conference we organized in Helsinki on, it was called the Employers Forum on Reconciling Work and Family Life. So uh, I read her previous book, uh, Future Work, and then she went on to write others like Why Women Mean Business. She's a former long-serving journalist with the Financial Times. Uh, Alison is also Senior Fellow in Human Capital at the Conference Board and a Senior Visiting Fellow at Cass Business School London. She is the chair of the CAS Global Women's Leadership Program Executive Board and has served as vice chair of the International Women's Forum UK. She was director of the Conference Board's European Council for Diversity and Inclusion in Business for nine years. And my other guest, so co-authoring the book, is Rebecca Steele. Uh, I haven't met Rebecca yet, but I'm really thrilled to, to have her on the podcast. She is a business strategist, innovator, and speaker with a deep expertise in diversity and inclusion. Uh, Rebecca is building on two decades uh, in the corporate world, including uh, being a senior leader in Fortune 500 companies. And she launched her own consultancy, focusing on the intersection of diversity, inclusion, and human-centered design thinking. She helps leaders in business, government, and nonprofit organizations and bring progressive strategies to life via her signature DNI innovation labs and distinctive ecosystem design process. So I'm super thrilled to have the two of you here uh, uh, on this conversation today. So um, I would like to ask you a very practical question. Um, what experiences uh, made you want to write this book? Um, what was it that, that really led you to say, okay, now it's time for us to take our experiences, to take what we know and, and put it in this specific book? Um, and perhaps also who 
this book is for. And then later I'll ask you some uh, some follow-up questions. So, um, Rebecca, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. So what was it that, the, you know, the two of you put your heads together and decided, okay, let's let's write this book? Thank you. Well, Allison and I both care about helping organizations better achieve their goals by acting on the imperatives of both inclusion and diversity. So we've long spearheaded new ways of thinking and new ways of working that can generate better DNI results and their impacts. Um, and in our work with business executives and diversity and inclusion leaders, across sectors and around the world, we've seen a persistent frustration. We saw leaders knowing that inclusion was important, but they weren't sure how to tangibly define inclusion, how to effectively measure inclusion and its impacts on their organization's purpose and their people, or you know what strategies and actions would bring inclusion to life. And we saw that so many organizations were taking piecemeal approaches that just could not deliver the sustainable business-linked results they need. So we wanted to address that gap between you know, the promise and the practice of inclusion with a comprehensive approach to clearly link inclusion with business relevant results and to consistently integrate inclusion into every aspect of their organizations. So just like any other business driver, a comprehensive approach linked to business results is critical. Absolutely. So Alison, would you, would you like to also share your perspective on this? Yes, I mean, I, I love what uh, Rebecca has said. And, and I would add that um, it's really apparent that inclusion is increasingly important um, in, in the world today. It's, uh, it, it's really important to help us to address the disruptive challenges that face our world. Um, and organizations really need to call on the perspectives, the experiences, the ideas of the, the broadest possible mix of people. Um, so really inclusion is, we say that inclusion is, is necessary for, for the three Ps, performance, for preparedness and for purpose. So for performance, first of all, there's a lot of evidence that inclusion drives things like innovation. It drives you know, better decisions in, in organizations. It can reduce risk. It can boost revenues. And then there's preparedness. Now, preparedness is really all about how does inclusion link to the new world of work, to the challenges we're facing and will face in the future. Things like we need higher level human skills uh, to thrive alongside smart machines, for example. Uh, we need really uh, good higher level human skills to hold people together when we are working virtually. And of course, uh, now suddenly so many people are working virtually because of this unprecedented global pandemic that we're in. And then um, the third P is, is about purpose. So um, organizations are, are quite rightly focusing increasingly on what is their purpose? What is their purpose beyond just profit? So, um, so we, we call them the performance, preparedness and purpose, three really important reasons to focus on inclusion. Um, and I think you, you asked uh, earlier about who the book is, is for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's for senior leaders, uh, for example, uh, the chief executive who wants to align profit and purpose 
for the the innovation leader, say, who wants to uh, get unconventional ideas in order to to innovate better. Uh, It's for the risk officer, for example, who's intent on uh, avoiding the fallout, the damage that can happen when you have discrimination, when you have bias in organizations. And it's not just for senior leaders. So this book is actually for everyone. So we've included um, uh, questions and advice uh, and suggestions for middle managers who are often at the really the sharp end who have to implement the strategy. And we've also included uh, a lot of advice and actions that individuals can take within for themselves or, or actually with their teams because inclusion impacts everybody and everybody has a role to play. Yes, absolutely. Um, so... What I'm getting is also um, something that I think many people believe who come especially from disability and and gender, um, you know, the specific uh, diversity dimension is is that inclusion is everybody's business, right? It's it's not just one person who who is responsible, the chief inclusion officer. It really should be a shared responsibility across the board. Correct, correct. Now, uh, I also wanted to ask you, um, how was it to to write this book uh, with 6,000 miles and a big ocean uh, between the two of you? Because the book reads very seamlessly. Um, you know, it's, 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 you, you never know when, when you read a book that was written by two uh, co-authors, whether there will be one chapter, this one, one chapter, but it, it you know, it, it reads such, uh, it's a very easy to read very um, logical flow of, of ideas and, and, and really a seamless blend of, of the two of you. Oh, well, that's a really lovely thing to hear. And, um, and it's always interesting to hear, you know, the, the feedback from, from people reading it. Um, and it was, uh, well, I think we would both agree that it was a, it was a wonderful, it's been a wonderful collaboration. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting to to look at is what what were the skills or what were the the, the things that we had to call on uh, in ourselves in order to um, you know make such a collaboration work so well uh, over such a long period. We actually only had one one week. We knew each other, of course, before um, knew each other well, so that that really helped. That was important. But um, we only had one week when we actually spent time together in person, and the rest of it was done virtually. Um, and there was core things I think like um, openness and respect for each other's ideas and uh, being adaptable being willing to uh, adapt to work out um, you know a common view um, to uh, listen appreciatively with appreciation and to give each other space to to hear each other uh, and to really hear each other um, each other's views uh, I think transparency is really important and um, things like mutual support and having, of course, most importantly, you know, shared purpose, because we both felt passionately about this this subject that we really wanted to advance it. And then there's one other thing which was quite critical, which I think was was patience, because the technology did not always work, of course, as we know, it often doesn't. So uh, and when that fails, it's frustrating. And uh, but and you just have to you just have to regroup when you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's really interesting. Um, so you, the two of you, wrote a book basically about the bridging the gaps of what organizations should be doing and what will work and what they're doing now. And there are lots of initiatives like, you know, the diversity charter where organizations sign up and they commit to, to a, a number of points or checklists. But, um, you know, we know from statistics that we're far, far behind in, in inclusion. Some countries are even regressing in gender equality, for example, um, but also this is a shared experience by migrants or people of color, people with disabilities, that they could be, you know, organizations could do so much more. So, Rebecca, if, if I may turn to you, in your experience, what are these blockages that mean that perhaps even the, the organizations who would be willing somehow doesn't seem to be able to progress on inclusion? Yeah, I mean, we, we really can be pleased with recognizable progress in some areas over the past few decades, but the slow pace of progress, the, the disappointing regression, um, the insufficient results are all signals that we have to take a different approach to get better results. So let me highlight three of the reasons organizations are not advancing on DNI. Uh, the first is reliance on piecemeal approaches. Rather than a comprehensive, indivisible strategy, many approach DNI as a set of disconnected programs or isolated events or solo initiatives, things like a diversity speaker series, um, a bit of bias awareness training, and so on. Um, but as we describe in the book, a far more ambitious, holistic alternative is necessary to achieve widespread and lasting outcomes. Um, I think a second common barrier is replicating what are often labeled as best practices that are actually ineffective. Uh, one example is based on the evidence that shows us that unconscious bias awareness training is not effective in mitigating the negative impacts of bias, but it's a really common practice and often called a best practice. So these kinds of approaches do not achieve the crucial outcomes we need. And meanwhile, they waste resources um, and sometimes they are unintentionally distracting or even damaging along the way. And I think a third failure mode is when diversity and inclusion are just not linked to business outcomes, such as innovation for competitive advantage or customer retention or sustainable and profitable growth. So despite leaders' requests so often for, you know, what we call the business case for DNI, they actually fail to integrate and align DNI strategies with those overarching business goals. And that really sets DNI up as being optional or as a distraction from mission critical goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. We definitely can do better. And in Indivisible, we share how a business linked whole system strategy is more effective. Yes, and, and, and I think so many of the listeners who are especially, you know, HR professionals or professionals in diversity and inclusion are going to be just nodding their heads uh, listening along to you because it's usually these uh, one-day celebrations a year uh, or, you know, as you said, a kind of a thematic week or a conference or webinar series, things that are really there to... Um, just check, tick the boxes, right, and and not not 
permeate the business in its deeper layers uh, right to its DNA to say we are a, a workplace that is that is inclusive um, now the the book you write uh, about the differences and the links between diversity and inclusion um, and I know that a lot of times we use diversity and inclusion kind of in the same breath but yours is really focusing on inclusion which I thought was really refreshing so Alison, uh, uh, would you maybe explain a little bit where diversity ends and inclusion begins and why perhaps the inclusion part is neglected and but however why are both important? Yes, sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's right that the two um, often do get confused. And for example, uh, you could have a, a company talking about what they're doing or how, how they are doing on inclusion. And actually, they're talking about their diversity numbers. So, for example, the ratio of uh, women to men in their leadership ranks or uh, that kind of thing. Um, so diversity is really the vast mix of people, identities, strengths, experiences that are a reality in, in our world and, and in the workforce. Um, the fact that it's not reflected in organizations, especially the more senior that you, you go, um, that's, that has led diversity to be seen um, as something of a problem that's got to be solved. And we, we reframe that. We think we should reframe it. And really, diversity is, is actually an amazing opportunity for organizations. Well, for the reasons that, that I outlined above about performance and about um, preparedness and about purpose, but diversity doesn't flourish. It cannot flourish without inclusion. And in fact, without inclusion, diversity is unfulfilled potential. So, so inclusion is really about seizing the opportunity of diversity. It's, it's about designing, it's about building and sustaining environments in which everyone can flourish. So you could, for example, um, it, and it often happens, that you that organizations hire you know, from a broad mix of talent and then the work environment unfortunately doesn't respect and value their voices, their contributions or enable their career progression. And so they leave. So there's really wasted talent, wasted potential. That's just one example of it. So inclusion is absolutely crucial, and that's why we decided to focus on it in this book. It's not, it isn't an add-on. It is actually indivisible from the way that organizations should operate. Mm, absolutely. And, and um, I don't know, Rebecca, would you like to add something? Oh, I think uh, Alison covered it very well. I mean, the way I might phrase it is to say that diversity is about that full mix of similarities and differences that we find in a population like a work group or a labor pool or a leadership team. Um, and that inclusion, as Allison said, is how we cultivate the full environment that can make the most of that mix um, so that each person can thrive individually, but also together everyone can thrive in pursuing the collective goals of the organization. Yes. So, so, um, I, I, I think that what you just said also at the beginning, Alison, really resonates about, you know, um, 
leaders or organizations boasting about their achievements in diversity and inclusion by just listing a number of uh, numbers or percentages, whereas, you know, what is the actual lived experience of the people? How do they uh, find working in this organization? Do they have a sense of belonging uh, in that organization? That's a whole other conversation. Um, and, and talking about uh, leaders, Alison, what makes a naturally inclusive leader? I, I, I was very interested in reading this in, in the book about inclusive leadership, and, and you mentioned specifically this naturally inclusive leader. Yes, yes, and, and indeed uh, also the question about, you know, can, is it something that, that uh, you either have or you don't have, or is it something that, you know, that you can learn and, and that can be taught? Are you born um, with it or, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, a naturally inclusive leader I would say is is uh, a leader who who looks out for for other people who enables other people to flourish uh to be fully themselves and who doesn't always put themselves out in the front or think that they need to be out front in charge all the time but actually encourages others to to step up to assume responsibility to contribute their strengths and and actually only steps in when it's necessary to do that now, I mean, there are many characteristics, I would say, of, of uh, inclusive leaders, um, but certainly a lack of ego uh, or the ability to suppress ego anyway, and also abundant humility are, are two sort of central things. Um, and I think it's, I mean, the, the example that we have in the book is uh, is of, of a, a leader called uh, Hido Horst, who um who had been on many leadership programs and he, he was used to being fully in charge. You know, that was what was expected. He, he, he saw that as being the norm for, for leaders. And he went on, on this program called collective leadership. Um, and he learned that actually he had this really, uh, his great, one of his greatest strengths, probably his greatest strength as a leader was that he was inclusive, that he was, uh, able to bring people along to uh, to actually sort of like the leader from behind, um, and and initially it was a little bit of a struggle I think for him to he says that you know it was a challenge for him to recognise that this was uh, the leadership strength that he really needed to step into because it just wasn't valued in the way that so many other leadership competencies are, and that is one of the issues. And then when he stepped into it he really saw the benefits and it was also kind of how he naturally leads. So so one of the lessons from this is that that inclusivity isn't yet highly valued enough as a leadership strength and yet it's absolutely essential to have it in your leadership mix. Um, and so organizations uh, not only need to, to, to value those who have it naturally but yes they can also learn how to do it and actually in the book we we offer a lot of suggestions and actions for leaders to take um, to increase their their inclusivity uh, both you know in the way that they they structure and run the organization the design of the organization and in their everyday actions uh, and I thought it was interesting that um, he does advice it is to other leaders is actually you know value what you're good at and know when others need to step in to piggyback on, on this um, and, and listening to you, um, 
made me think a little bit about, you know, what it takes for somebody to become a leader. And often those skills or characteristics that, you know, they deploy in rising through the ranks would be quite counter uh, productive to what you just said, because they have to put themselves first, they have to promote themselves, they have to um, you know, make sure that there's the ones who are going to be selected for for any promotion or new opportunity. Whereas when I was listening to you listen about you know explaining the characteristics of of an inclusive leader, it makes me also think that it these are uh, almost feminine values or feminine characteristics. So, how can somebody who has these characteristics or these values rise through the ranks without adopting a competitive or ego-driven behavior. And are men comfortable showing this inclusiveness and not being judged? I guess these are two questions. So feel free, uh, Alison or Rebecca, to, to, to get back to on this. Yes. I mean, Rebecca, Rebecca I, I'd, I'd love you to, to come in here because of that, that, uh, that wonderful conversation and the writing that you've done um, about, you know, the, the, the way that leadership is perceived and, and, and the self-confidence um, element of, of that particularly. Yes, uh, this is a real case from a senior leadership team that was for the first time defining um, what characteristics and attributes they were looking for as they started to do succession planning to prepare for future leadership. And right away, one of the senior leaders in the group said that self-confidence was absolutely critical. And, you know, if you can set aside whether or not you think that's a critical um, attribute uh, and just pay attention to what happened next, I just kind of took a coaching approach and started asking questions to this group. And I asked them if they thought, for example, that maybe our employees in the United States might be demonstrating self-confidence differently than in China, generally. Um, and we had a bit of discussion about how that might show up differently across cultures. And then I asked how it might show up differently between um, older generations and younger generations. And that was kind of a funny conversation because it revolved around, you know, whether or not you thought you were self-confident in a business suit or in shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, we talked about whether or not we might expect to see self-confidence generally um, appearing differently among men and women. And we also had a very interesting discussion there and looked at some of the research about, you know, what's different about how women and men generally um, are different in how they promote themselves at work. And so what came out of that was not only um, a nice set of attributes that would help us predict who would be good leaders in the future, but also defining them in different ways that were more broad and would take into account these many differences and how self-confidence and other attributes would show up. And also helping leaders understand how to see when self-confidence was showing up in ways that might be different from the mainstream. And um, that, of course, ended up getting integrated into all the human resources processes. And it did actually lead to greater gender balance um, in leadership and also um, some other very positive outcomes beyond those diversity numbers. So 
you know, I think we do need to take a real step back and say, what makes an effective leader? Um, can we learn from things like servant leadership, dem democratic or uh, collaborative leadership, um, collective leadership, and these other models of leadership that are not traditional ways that we see leaders and that can be more inclusive and help more people lead in different ways. And also in ways that even employees would not necessarily recognize immediately as someone being a strong leader, uh, someone to follow, and they will then uh, in their turn need to adapt to, to, to a new style that maybe uh, feels different, but, but can be also very effective uh, and, and more inclusive. Yeah, and actually, that's a that's a very good reason why um, it, it's important that that everyone in an organisation uh, is able to is enabled to learn inclusive skills. Because I mean, not only they may they may be getting into a leadership position themselves at some point, um, but also the more people understand what inclusive leadership looks like and what inclusive behaviour looks like the more they will be able to challenge it in their leaders if if it's clearly missing. So it becomes more of a collective accountability across the organization. That's a great point. Um, and so uh, moving on in the conversation, there's also uh, chapter four is very interesting. It's, it's about beyond feelings, uh, but there's also a section on feelings. Um, which I found very interesting because there aren't a lot of business books or management books discussing, you know, these experiences or lived reality uh, of work of employees. Um, so how did you decide this section to be in the book, Alison? Yes, um, it, it's it's true. We, we talk quite a lot about uh, lived experiences in the book and um, well, that, I think there are there are a couple of ways that I would answer your question, which is, and again, it's really interesting to hear, you know, your your perspective on this. But, but um, yeah, it, it, it is it's fascinating to hear this. Um, I mean, there are a couple of things. What one is that that uh, feelings are really important, emotions are really important in this because to make any kind of change, uh, you have to have people on board for it, not only with their heads but also with their hearts. They've got to feel the need for it, not just rationally, but also be on board for it um, emotionally. A bit like, uh, you know, how do we get rid of plastic waste in the oceans? Uh, we have to, we can only do that through, through uh, connecting with this, this challenge through our, through our emotions and our, our connection to the, to the natural world, as well as our rational thinking. Um, so these are really important. So there, there's an example that we we give uh, in the book of um, a video that was created by a Danish television company, uh, TV2, which is all about inclusive television programming and how to avoid putting people into boxes. It, it's called All That We Share, and I would really encourage um, your your listeners to uh, to look it up if they haven't or if they don't already know it. It's an amazing video, very short, but very touching because it touches on our common humanity. Um, and I think it's also important to say that this wasn't just a nice to do thing by uh, the Danish uh, TV channel. It was actually directly tied to their business strategy and purpose. 
So, uh, which was with their purpose being to be a channel for everyone, a television channel for everyone. And it actually brought significant benefits to the business. So they tapped into feelings, they tapped into emotions, uh, our common humanity, in order to um, in order to achieve that. And and they saw very significant benefits, and appealed to. I mean, it was a, a video that went went all over the world. And another thing that the other thing I'd say about about um, feelings is that. Um, Understanding, it's really important because understanding and measuring inclusion only through individuals' feelings of inclusion is, is what most companies are, are doing if they are measuring it at the moment. They're doing it that way. And that is important, but it's not enough. And uh, so we, we argue in the book that organisations really also need to know about whether inclusion is being supported or being undermined by people's actions, not just their feelings, so their actions and behavior, and also by the infrastructure of the organization. So that's the systems, the processes, the signals that people give, the rules, the written and unwritten rules of the organization. You need to be understanding and measuring and addressing all of those and that's part of our comprehensive approach. Um, and maybe just it's helpful to give an, a, a quick example here. So um, one of our case studies is about uh, a, a young employee, very talented employee who uh, felt very included in her team and by her manager. Um, and so obviously uh, signaled that in the, um, in the survey, the engagement survey. Uh, but what she didn't know was that there was a systemic bias in the organization that actually favored, um, like an unwritten rule in a way, uh, favored people who had the leadership characteristics of the, um, of, the, of the men who had been in charge and were in charge, uh, dominated you know, the, the ranks of that organization. Um, and over time, she found that despite you know, the efforts of her and her manager to get promotion and so on, um, that 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 didn't happen. So the systems, the processes were not aligned um, and did not reflect the feelings that she reported in her in her team, which was actually a, um, something of a, a role model within the organization, but not typical. Yeah, and if I can jump in, I mean, one of the things Alison and I definitely wanted to develop was um, an awareness and approach that would help us look at not just do people feel included, but are they actually included? And this case that uh, Allison just spoke to gives an example of this person who felt included, but in fact she wasn't because she couldn't get ahead in this organization despite having amazing potential. And the organization lost her. She went to another more inclusive organization and has had a very um, flourishing leadership career since then. Um, and, you know, I think we see how important a comprehensive approach is uh, beyond feelings when we look at how the world is tackling the COVID-19 crisis right now. You know, we can't respond effectively by only focusing on people's feelings and perceptions. For example, we know that some people have the virus even when they feel well. Uh, we've seen examples of some people believing the virus doesn't apply to them or perceiving that they have no responsibility. 
And, you know, beyond feelings, we also cannot rely only on individual actions and behaviors. Yes, of course, we all need to take the actions to wash our hands and practice physical distance. But even those actions are not enough to tackle this challenge. So in addition to feelings and actions, we also need a whole system strategy to coordinate healthcare systems to gear up for the influx of patients. Um, we're seeing businesses actually requiring employees to work from home. Uh, federal and local governments are implementing physical isolation measures like you know, shutting down travel or closing schools. Um, and they're also making interventions addressing economic implications and a lot more. So feelings are important. But the COVID-19 situation shows that feelings are only one part of the whole system. And it's the same with inclusion. That was so well explained. Thank you so much, Rebecca, because we have also met uh, in our work, you know, these lone warriors, HR managers or diversity inclusion managers who are so passionate about the work and they want to make sure that they're, you know, people under their um leadership around the, you know, working in that organization where they're responsible for, that they've, they are included, that they, you know, they meet diversity targets. But as you say, um, just this one person cannot make the difference if the whole system is kind of uh, geared against, against them. Right. So uh, before we go to the last question, may I ask you to share with listeners where they can uh, find out about the book that was just out on the 22nd of February, the 28th of February this year, 2020. So where can they find about the book? Where can they, uh, you know, read more about the two of you? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the best place is to go to the book website and that's, indivisible-book.com, or some people might say indivisible-or-book.com, but uh, that's the best place to find out more about the book um, and also uh, links to us and information about us as co-authors as well. And it's, Great. Well, it, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. Can I just add? And, and it's sure. Available, it's available on Amazon, so there's a you know, paperback, uh, in paperback version, or of course there's an an e-version if people want to, to download it to their e-readers. Are you going to be uh, recording an audio version? We hope so. <laughs> Great. Um, so finally, the last question, which is always the same here on, on our podcast. If uh, perhaps we start with Rebecca, if you could give one advice to senior leaders to make, you know, what should they do to make their organization more inclusive? What would be your advice to them? Well, it's clear to me that senior leaders need to treat inclusion the same as they would any other critical business driver, such as marketing or safety. When organizations thoughtfully and inclusively bring together a full mix of people and their ideas, they can achieve the high performance and innovation needed to fulfill their mission and also to transcend increasingly complex challenges. Great. And, and Alison, what would be your advice? Well, I'd like it to be a challenge, actually. I'd like to say be ambitious for inclusion. Inclusion reaches inside your organization and it also extends outside to all of your stakeholders, all of your partners 
and the societies in which you operate. And there are pioneering companies, and we we do talk about them in the book, uh, who are setting the pace, really, with strategies that are built on the interdependent goals of inclusion and sustainability. They're, They're building bridges, they're finding breakthrough solutions to our most pressing challenges. So what will your role be in advancing inclusion, not just internally in your organization, but across the whole of society? Wow, thank you. These were really, really inspiring words uh, to close this fantastic conversation. So thank you very much, Alison and Rebecca, for joining me on this podcast and sharing your insight and experience. And I just want to wish you really the best of success with the book. Thank you very much indeed, Anis. It's been lovely talking to you. Yes, thank you.